Our third scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The Gospel of the Lord. Author of life, we thank you for your words and for your wisdom. And we ask that as we reflect upon your life and your teachings, your spirit, would dwell within us so that we might be transformed in heart, mind, and soul. Amen. With this morning's gospel message, we've reached a point in the Lenten season where our story turns away from the teachings of Jesus' life and starts turning toward the final days of his ministry. Six days before the Passover, Six days before Jesus will be betrayed, he gathers with his disciples in the house of Martha and Lazarus. And while they are spending time together, two very different attitudes emerge from Jesus' followers. Jesus has already foretold his death by this point in John's Gospel. And so Mary takes a pound of nard, a perfume used for anointing the bodies of dead kings, and anoints Jesus with the perfume by using her hair. There are several significant things about this act. First, for Mary to use her hair indicates to us the close relationship between Mary and Christ because it transcends the typical boundaries for what would have been acceptable for first century Palestinian Jews. Second, it highlights the role of Christ as a kingly figure someone who deserves to be treated with the same respect afforded to any earthly ruler. Third, it highlights the faithfulness of Mary as a disciple. Mary and the women are the disciples who will never abandon Christ at any point in the Paschal narrative. Even after the crucifixion, as the men lock themselves in an upper room and hide in fear, Mary and the women will go to tend to Christ's body. In this story, we see a foreshadowing of that, and we see that Mary trusts Christ's teachings when he tells his disciples that his death will come soon. 
Compare this to Peter, who, even at the moment of Jesus' arrest, tries to thwart what Jesus has said by drawing a sword and striking at his captors. But Mary, Mary remains faithful throughout. And now contrast the attitude of Mary with that of Judas. When Judas sees Mary pour out the perfume upon Christ's feet, he loudly objects that the perfume could have been sold to benefit the poor. But the narrator of John's gospel kindly chimes in to make us aware of the fact that Judas is not only about to betray Jesus and not only lying about his anger, but is a thief who stole from the common purse. It's hard to know whether Judas ever truly believed that Jesus was the Christ or whether he was always an opportunist who saw a chance to ride someone else's coattails to power. But by this point, it must have been starting to come clear that Jesus wasn't the gravy train that Judas was hoping for. This was not a Messiah who was going to lead the Jewish people to a mighty victory over Rome. This was not a Messiah who would restore his people to power and wealth. This was a Messiah who was homeless and poor, who hung out with the sick and the marginalized. And so Judas is doing everything he can to squeeze just a little more cash out of the whole thing before the wheels come off. But Jesus sees through Judas' intentions, and he cites to him scripture, saying, You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. And what Jesus is making reference to there is Deuteronomy 15, verses 7 through 11, which read, If there is among you anyone in need, a member of your community in any of your towns within the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards your needy neighbor. You should rather open your hand, willingly lending enough to meet the need, whatever it may be. Be careful that you do not entertain a mean thought, thinking the seventh year, the year of remission, is near, and therefore view your needy neighbor with hostility and give nothing. Your neighbor might cry to the Lord against you, and you would incur guilt. Give liberally and be ungrudging when you do so. For on this account, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. Since there will never cease to be someone in need on the earth, I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. So Jesus isn't saying not to worry about the poor because they'll always be there. Instead, he's pointing to a scripture that says you must always be generous with what you have because there will always be someone in need. And the truth of the matter is that what Mary has done is unbelievably generous. There's a reflection from the Iona community that draws our attention to this fact. What it says is this, she was the penniless poorest of the poor, giving away the only precious thing she had. And he sat still while she poured the liquid all over his head, as unnecessary as aftershave on a full crop of hair and a bearded chin. And those who smelled it and those who saw it and those who remembered that he was against extravagance called him a waster. They forgot 
that he was also the poorest of the poor. And they who had much and had given nothing objected to a pauper giving him everything. Jealousy was in the air when a poor woman's generosity became an embarrassment to their tight-fistedness. Now, perhaps there was a discussion to be had in good faith about whether Mary's praxis was perfect. But that was not what Judas was doing. He was arguing from a place of bad faith because the life that he had become accustomed to was changing. The privilege that he had of managing the common purse was coming to an end. And so he employed false outrage as a weapon to try and keep himself in this position of power. And as I read this story, I could not help but think of one of the most common questions that I hear as a young minister. Where are all the young people? And I was reminded of a young person who took the floor of general conference and told those gathered there that the young people have been speaking, but the church hasn't been listening. So I'm telling you, as a young person in the church, why the young people are missing from our pews. They are sick of the church that follows in the footsteps of Judas. They have no time for a worn out, hypocritical institution that is concerned primarily about its own survival. They do not trust a church that employs outrage as a weapon in order to protect its own privilege. Why would they support a church that generates outrage over so-called scriptural truths about human sexuality but has no outrage over the much clearer scriptural truths about the corrupting influence of money and the damning nature of violence? Why would they support a church that generates outrage in the name of being pro-life, but has no outrage over a Supreme Court that believes torturing inmates to death is acceptable? Why would they support a church that generates outrage over abortion but has no outrage when children are born to a world where they have no health care and no food? Why would they support a church that generates outrage over the idea of climate change, but has no outrage that our young people are inheriting a world with air they cannot breathe and water they cannot drink? Why would they support a church that generates outrage in the name of so-called patriotism, but has no outrage over the endless wars that take the lives of our young adults, why would they support a church that generates outrage over someone during the, kneeling during the national anthem, but has no outrage when the government puts children in cages and allows its law enforcement officers to be judge, jury, and executioner without consequence? Why would they support a church that generates outrage over the criticism of the Israeli government as being anti-Semitic, but has no outrage over the rise of neo-Nazis and white nationalists? Why would anyone support this church of Judas? And when young people have the courage to say that they want the church of Mary, a church that uses whatever resources are available to it for the mission of God, they are sneeringly called socialists as if that were an insult. 
as if we do not follow a Lord who said that man cannot serve money and God, as if the early Christian community in Acts wasn't recorded as holding all things in common and claiming private ownership over nothing. The death of Christ, a death foreshadowed by Mary's actions, was the giving of a gift that was not earned by any right other than the right of all humans as beloved children of God to have lives of wholeness and happiness. The church of Mary and of Jesus is a church that celebrates the sacred worth of all people. It is a church that gives from each according to their ability and to each according to their need. And it's not just young people who are tired of the church as it has been. The emerging church around the globe is calling into question the systems rooted in racism and colonialism that have been unthinkingly absorbed into our religious structures. These Christians have seen firsthand the effects of colonialism masquerading as evangelism. They have seen as the name of God is invoked to attack their cultural heritage and practice. They have seen the church sit idly by as their countries have been stripped of their resources and their people exploited for labor. The Western Church of Judas has held the coins to the common purse and has benefited from stealing from the poor. And so the Reverend Dr. Charles Boyu, the district superintendent of the Greater Detroit District, who was born in Africa and lived there for 23 years, recently shared these thoughts. This emerging new majority belongs to a newer brand of evangelistic United Methodism that is losing its patience with a church increasingly dominated by institutionalists whose priorities are based on institutional survival, maintenance of the status quo, balancing budgets, fearing decline, and catering primarily to wealthier segments of the demographics. American traditionalists may have a mistaken impression that their priorities are perfectly aligned with those of Africa. But this emerging majority is emerging to highlight the oppression of the powerless, to seek redress of global iniquities, and to realign the church's power with the cries of oppressed people everywhere. The church, in other words, is set for a major upheaval as the way that things have been done comes under scrutiny from every direction. And even though I disagree with the vote that happened at General Conference, I understand the worries that were being articulated by our brothers and sisters from Central Conferences. Time and again, they came to the microphone to say that they did not want the American church to continue telling them how to do church. For centuries, they have been dictated to and now that they have enough power to push back, they are saying enough is enough. Jesus saw straight through Judas's scheming. And I am telling you that the young people and people from around the world see through the scheming of those who continue to betray the gospel today. So each and every one of us needs to ask ourselves which side of the line we fall on. Are we in the church of Mary? giving whatever we have to the church for the benefit of others? Or are we in the church of Judas looking to benefit ourselves? If all we want from the church is for it to reinforce our pre-existing worldviews, then we better do some soul searching because the church of Mary demands everything from us. 
It demands not only whatever wealth we might have, but it demands letting go of what we believe about God and about power and about justice so that we can be radically transformed to understand that God does not rule through power and justice is not about retribution. God's kingdom is built through vulnerability and sharing. God's justice is achieved through reconciliation and love. And until we understand these things, until we can let go of our desire for power and for control and for wealth, we set ourselves against God. Amen. Please pray with me. God of Mary and Jesus, help us to let go. Lead us out of the prisons of capitalism, nationalism, racism, and colonialism so that we can be truly free. For true freedom is found only in you and true joy comes from knowing that the powers of sin and death no longer have any control over our lives. Amen.